I've lived about 32 years here, and I've moved way too many times in the past few years trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Lived in Pensacola for a long time, lived in Miami for a short time, lived in Las Vegas for a short time. Now I've lived here in Georgia for a few years. We've never owned a home. We've rented several houses. As a matter of fact, on our journey to find like just the right house with our weird situation, we've lived in like three houses in Georgia alone, all rentals, and we finally found a home that we bought and closed and started moving in, and it's awesome. God's been blessing it, and I've been overwhelmed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I've been so overwhelmed by the generosity that the church has offered because my wife the other day posted on Facebook, hey, does anybody know any movers you would recommend that everyone's like, you don't need movers, we'll come help, what can we do, we got boxes, we can help, my kids can come help, and while I'm very grateful for that, I've moved enough times to know that when I'm in charge of a moving operation, things don't go as planned, and I would like to show you some photo evidence right here. This is a U-Haul, and that mansion is not my house. That was a performing arts facility that I was driving through looking for a buffet in Thomasville, Georgia. And there was no doubt in my mind that it was tall enough. As you can see, I put 15 of 26 foot of U-Haul through that. Don't worry, USAA is great insurance. We made it out. But life doesn't always go as planned. And it's really easy when those catastrophes happen to think, where are you, God? But I want you to like look at the book of Genesis and realize that, man, things on page one, as long as humans are involved, things go wrong. Creation didn't go as planned. And, and what we're going to do today is, is a little bit of a study in the book of Genesis to understand that our creation story is more than a history lesson in what the Hebrews and now Christ followers believe how, how, how the world was formed and how people were, were placed in the Garden of Eden. No, no, our creation story was actually a response to a very dark worldview in the ancient Mesopotamian area. So Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Now Moses was alive thousands of years after Adam and, and all these other patriarchs that had came before him. As a matter of fact, Moses became the leader of God's people after they'd been enslaved in Egypt for four hundred years and Egypt was a part of this Middle East Mesopotamian region that all shared similar gods known as the, the Pantheon. And what I want to do Rick, real quick before we open up the Bible, I want to show you what the Hebrew people were exposed to. Hebrew people were a monotheistic. They believed Yahweh was the one true God and their creation account is very different than what I'm about to show you from the religions of the Mesopotamia, Persian, Babylonian times. Here's kind of a first glimpse at some of the idols that, that were creating things. The God of water, knowledge, and mischief. I think basically today that would be the God of super soakers. He's there building things. He would like to make things difficult on people. You would see oftentimes in Mesopotamian mythology and Greek mythology, gods are basically screwing around with the people to make their life difficult because they had the power and they could. So moves on to the creation story. You've got this uh, chaos monster snaky thing right here. Marduk is on top of him, and this is what they believe. This battle is what was responsible for the heavens and earth being created. Marduk slayed this snake, and now here's another look. The snake's name in Mesopotamian was chaos monster. That's in the English rendering, like legit translation from, I think it's Tiatim is how they would say it. Marduk on the right, chaos monster on the left, 
They're fighting. Marduk wins, cuts his body in half. One half of his body forms the heavens. One half of his body forms the earth. And this is what all of the surrounding countries believed about the creation, believed about the gods. And so their creation story is violent. It's all about the gods in, in, in a violent control over their creation, where the humans were made to please the gods. It was a very uh, hierarchy system. Matter of fact, any of the gods that took on a female form were only for, for, for sexual purposes. So there was a tremendous slavery problem. There was a tremendous just racial problem. This was all existed rooted in their religious worldview that the gods would form creation and people out of violence. And that's why you would see all over in the neighboring countries human sacrifices, child sacrifices, doing things to keep these angry gods from invoking their wrath and their mischief on people. And so Moses comes along and decides to write down the oral tradition that had been passed down from Adam to Noah to all throughout these couple of thousand years to, 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 to where Moses is at now as the patriarch and the prophet of God's people. Not only did he, you know, write down the Ten Commandments or have God write them down on, on blocks, he had also decided to, to recount the Hebrew history. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is the difference between our God, our faith, our belief system, and everything else that the world had to offer at the time. So not only... Is it a history lesson, but it's a cue for how we are supposed to live as ambassadors, as representatives of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Now this is very different than a group of violent gods who out of war created creation and humans to be their loyal subjects out of fear for their lives. No, this God actually created humans in his image and then offers them a responsibility. He says, subdue the earth. The definition of subdue means to take control, to have dominion. So this God not only says, you will rule and reign on my behalf, but out of all the other things that I've created, God said, let humans bear my image. Now, God is revealed through creation. If you've ever been on top of Sawney Mountain or wherever, however God speaks to you, a lot of people think they see God in the stars and in nature and you're up on top of a mountain or you're at the beach. And yes, God is revealed through all that. The Bible says in Romans 1, the eternal qualities and the divine attributes are revealed through creation. But the image of God, the likeness of God is chosen and designated for humans. And you have to understand the intrinsic value that is placed on your life just because you have breath in your lungs today, that you are an image bearer. You see, in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments was to create no carven images of Yahweh, of the one true God. 
Like all the other religions had idols and carvings and statues, and that was their way to relate to God. But the way that all these other nations were supposed to find God and relate to God wasn't at a temple, anything that could be built by human hands. The image of God was revealed through his people. That's why we didn't need any idols or statues or carvings. Because when you look at your neighbor, you are supposed to see a glimpse of the one true God. So we, ruling and reigning on his behalf, being entrusted with the dominion of creation, we are also invited to bear his image. And there's responsibilities that come with that. God invites those who bear his image to share his responsibility with the restoration of creation. See, as an, as an image bearer, we also become a responsibility sharer. That, that there's devastation all around us. That there's people looking for life and hope and healing and purpose in all the wrong places. And we are supposed to plant ourselves in the middle of that devastation and be a voice. Be a megaphone. Be the hands and feet. The restoration plan for creation. You fast forward a few thousand years and Jesus comes and he dies on the cross. And then he rises again from the grave to give us forgiveness and to give us life that we could never get on our own. And before he ascends back into heaven, he has 500 of his followers gathered around and he says, go to every nation, go to all parts of creation, locally, regionally, and globally, and, and, and witness to people. You'll be my witnesses. You'll make disciples, not just converts that come to church on Sundays, but disciples, followers of me, and you'll baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, there is a plan in place that you and I are called to accept as image bearers and responsibility sharers. There is no backup plan. There is no contingency. The voice, the hands and feet, the presence of God on earth is his church, his people, his image bearers. So we are called to represent God well. To bring about reconciliation. To, to bring people back into Eden. You see, spiritually, if you know Jesus as the Lord of your life, you spiritually have been restored into Eden. Into that sense of perfect relationship with the Father. And now that love that has happened to you is supposed to move through you as you try to bring people back into Eden. You try to restore paradise, try to bring God's love to people. And what would it look like if we stopped having this church where we're like, come and see, come and see, come and see. But we decided to go and be the image bearers and the responsibility sharers. There's an intrinsic purpose on our life. That we get to bear the image of God to a creation that hasn't gone as planned. See, God isn't just a distant God who's just hoping for the best. His plan for the devastation of creation is you. It's me. It's us together. Taking our place as his ambassadors, as his hands, as his feet. So what does that look like? As this truth intersects our daily life as employees, as sons, as daughters, as husbands, as wives, as team members, as teachers, as coaches, we have to position our lives and live in such a way that the image of God is revealed. And, and what I've seen is that the image of God is, is revealed in the way that we look, in the way that we live, in the way that we love, and in the way that we lead. 
In my simple mind, they all have to start with the same letter so it's easier to remember. It's called alliteration. In the way that we look, in the way that we live, in the way that we love, and the way that we lead. These four attributes of our life should be some of the platforms in which God reveals himself and draws people into his plan for hope and healing and restoration through us. Through the way that we look, the way that we live, the way that we love, and the way that we lead. Let's think about the way that we look. I've got two children, and they're checked in over there in the kids' area right now. My son, Declan, three years old, there's no question if he looks like me or his mom. He looks exactly like me, just like I looked exactly like my dad. If you don't believe me, my mom and dad are visiting today. You can, me and my dad will stand by each other in the lobby, and it's like mirror image. But my daughter, we're like, okay, see a little bit of Erica, see a little bit of Nathan. You've all got that family member where when they're a baby, you're like, that's, I see the nose there, but that's, that's a, those are Castleberry lips, but I don't know about the ears. I'm like, I don't know how to tell mommy's ears or daddy's ears, but, you know, whatever. But you're always trying to figure out whose image do they most resemble. I want to show you the genes run pretty strong with the firstborn males in the Castleberry family. Over here on the left is my dad, which me, if I cut off my beard, have my mustache, twin. That's me up top with the brown hair and my brother with the red. Over here is our family this summer, and there's the blonde version of myself at that age, three-year-old Declan. And my dad used to always tell me, he's like, man, you could never lie to me. I knew what you were thinking. I could see myself in you so I could read you like a book. And I was, I was always confused by that. But now that I have my own son who bears my image, I'm like, I see you. I know, don't you throw that at your sister. I know what's about to happen. I, I see myself in him, and everywhere we go, people see Declan, and they see me. And that's what's supposed to happen in the way that we look. The likeness of God is supposed to be revealed in us and, and through us. Let me explain what this looks like. Life doesn't go as planned. And our response to the disruption of our plans outwardly says a lot about the security of our trust in God inwardly. Listen, it's okay to be unhappy, it's okay to be angry. What I'm telling you has nothing to do with happiness and anger. The, happiness is a fleeting thing. It's okay when life doesn't go as planned to be unhappy. Happiness changes based on your appetite. Happiness changes based on the line at Chick-fil-A. Happiness changes based on how long you have to skim through Netflix to find a show that you've already watched a million times already. Happiness is here today and gone tomorrow. I'm not talking about the, the ebbs and flow of happiness. When I talk about the way that we look and the image of God being revealed in the way we look, I'm talking about something a lot deeper than happiness. I'm talking about our sense of joy. Because no matter how disrupted our plans become, we should have confidence and purpose no matter the storm that we're in. Because God is not on the throne saying, whoa, I didn't see that coming. God has never said, oops. God's never taken a nap. God has never called the angels together and said, what are we going to do? Nathan crashed that moving van. <laughs> our demeanor and our countenance should show people that we know that the king is still on the throne. Church, you have permission to lose your happiness. It comes and goes. You even have permission to be angry. The book of Ephesians says be angry but don't sin. But what we do not have permission as image bearers and responsibility sharers, we do not have permission to lose our joy. Because our happiness is rooted in our circumstances, but our joy is rooted in our Savior. 
When he said it is finished, that means every battle we face, every war we come up against, us is we are more than conquerors. And if we don't get what we want, it's because God is about to give us what we need. Anytime you get a no to your plans, it's because God's yes is right around the corner. So when you, when you, when life doesn't go as planned, when you get the diagnosis you didn't want, when you lose your job, when you lose your money, when you lose all your things, you can demonstrate peace. The Bible says, passes understanding, purpose, and joy. Because you are not the king. <laughs> you trust the king. And if he's still on the throne, you're going to be better than okay. And there's sometimes where our heart has to remind our face that we've been saved and God's got this. Let's walk with a little more confidence. Let's walk with a little more pep in our step. Because the way that we look, our countenance and our demeanor, is supposed to be one of the ways that people realize that Jesus is real. And when they look at the way you walk through tragedy and chaos and loss, they should realize that there's something anchoring you that's beyond anything that you can touch, anything that you can put in a bank account, anything that you can count. It's Jesus. The way we look when things go wrong should point people to Jesus. And it's the same thing for the way that we live. You see, our groups of friends, the decisions we make, the comments that we engage in on social media whether it's passive-aggressive, snarky, and political or not, the way that we live should point people to the fact that we are not living for our own preferences. The way that we live should point people toward Jesus. The way that we live should be inspiring because the way that we live should be what Jesus did. And what Jesus did is he never surrounded himself with people that could improve his social status. Jesus never gravitated toward people that he could get something from. Jesus constantly stepped over social and cultural boundaries. <laughs> he shattered exclusivity and gave everyone a place at the table. And if your group of friends looks like you, votes like you, listens to the same music as you, that's not an accurate picture of heaven where every tribe and every tongue is going to be represented. The way that we live should be inviting people in on this adventure of faith. The Bible says that we, we are led forth in triumphal procession. Our life should be a parade of victory. That doesn't mean that everything's always going to be healthy and wealthy, man. But it, what it does mean is our confidence doesn't come from our stuff. Our confidence doesn't come from our connections. That we get to live a life to the fullest. The Bible says in Philippians that... He's learned the secret to abundance, whether it's in times of a lot or times of a little. This is actually the context for when it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about how much you can bench press or how hard you can hit somebody on the football field. It actually has a lot more to do with the way that we live when we're not getting what we want. The way that we live should reveal the peace and the purpose and the promises of God. It should welcome people in and invite them to experience the fullness of the abundant life that Jesus came to give. The image of God is to be revealed in the way that we look, in the way that we live, but also in the way that we love. Now this is tricky, because when we think of love, we've kind of made it a very Western Hollywood type thing. You know, when the Bible was written about the way that a husband and a wife are supposed to love each other, there was no, like, dating period where they got to test drive it. It was a business deal that their parents worked out, and they just had to learn to love each other. There wasn't a lot of romance. You see, our world says intimacy first and then commitment later. 
But, but God's economy is a little bit different. We commit out of a position of sacrifice and, and loyalty, and then intimacy and the emotions follow that. You see, love isn't a very emotional thing. It's actually a very calculated thing. Love, in the truest sense of the word in the Bible, is all about sacrifice. It means doing what I don't want to do for the good of somebody else. Putting somebody else's needs and wants before mine. Not always having to get even. Not always having to get the last word. Knowing that if I... (laughs) take matters into my own hands and try to settle the score with somebody who's gossiping or posting about me, we are always going to settle it in a way that benefits us. We want justice for their mistakes. We want mercy for ours. And that's not love. Love first starts with loving God and trusting Him. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It's easy to love God. He wants to give you himself so you can escape hell. Thank you. I love you. This is great. You've given me a chance to have eternal life. Thank you, God. And then he's also supernatural and powerful. And sometimes he answers the prayers the way you want them and gives you that parking lot at Costco. Oh, I love you, God. You did this favor. Amen. But the flip side of that coin is that we would also love people. The way that we love ourselves. Now, I don't care if you look at a quarter from the top or the bottom, it's 25 cents either way. So what that means is the first and the second commandment that Jesus said is equally important. Here's what it looks like. The way we love God is displayed by the way that we love humans. If we don't love humans well, I would argue that maybe we don't love God as well as we if we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, then that means the same amount of care that we spend shopping, whether it's Ross like me or wherever you do you, do you. <laughs> Kroger, Walmart, put those clothes in your closet, look in the mirror, take care of yourself, dress yourself for success, have your hobbies and your vacations, money in your bank account, the same way that you seek to provide a good life for yourself. Bible says if we really love God, then we will put that same level of care and investment and time and energy and sacrifice into our neighbor. You know, for some of us, the most loving thing that we could do today, as soon as church is over, is find that person where the bridge is still burning and simply say, I'm sorry, or I forgive you. For some of us, the most loving thing that we could do is start challenging ourselves when we feel those little nudges toward kindness and generosity or noticing somebody or inviting somebody that never gets invited. These are the demonstrations and the expressions of love. If we only love those who love us and who are easy to love, then we are short-circuiting what this plan is supposed to be. Because the Bible says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Basically what he's saying is, while we had nothing to offer him, this wasn't going to be an investment that he got anything out of. He sacrificed for us. What does Jesus say when he's talking about love in John? He says, there's no greater form of love than to lay down your life. Love is sacrifice. The way that we love people is a reflection of the way that we love God. 
And if we want to be his image bearers and responsibility sharers for bringing hope to this world, we've got to start loving people the way Jesus did. Here's what I know about everyone who calls Jesus their Lord. If you've been saved, spiritually you've been restored to Eden. You've been given a cut of the garden to maintain, to restore a, a, a creation that is in a state of devastation. I'm not a great gardener. I've only ever had one garden in my life. And in that garden, I grew a bunch of peppers and, and vegetables and squash, zucchini, cucumbers. And while it sounds like I'm some really health nut and love vegetables, honestly, what happened with those veggies, the peppers specifically, is we cut them in half, filled them with cream cheese, wrapped them in bacon, and cooked them with some barbecue sauce. And we experienced a little bit of heaven on earth. But what I learned in my brief little endeavor into gardening is, is that the right, cultiva- the right cultivation produces the right kind of fruit. If you tend your garden well, plant the right kind of seeds, make sure there's sunlight, make sure there's water, make sure you prune the branches that are dead and pull the weeds, that's just cultivating your garden. What happens is you will see the fruit of the seeds that you plant as long as you're cultivating it the right way. And, and we can look at the fruit in our lives right now to know if we're cultivating our garden well. We're given a standard to judge ourselves by in the book of Galatians to see what kind of fruit we are bearing. You can look at a pepper and know it's a pepper because a pepper does not look like a potato. You can't plant potato seeds and get tomatoes. They don't look alike. They just sound alike. But we have to look at the fruit of our life. And see if we are consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now if these are not the defining attributes and qualities of our life, then we're not planting the right seeds and we are not tending to our garden well. This is the fruit that we are supposed to bear as we try to look like Jesus and show off Jesus, as we try to live like Jesus, as we try to love like Jesus. We also must understand that part of taking care of the garden is is pulling the weeds and removing the threats. And that's where leadership takes place. You know, it's not just me and Brian who are supposed to lead the way and preach the good news. There's a calling on your life to manage the garden and to cultivate well. And sometimes leadership is not with a microphone and a platform and saying, here we go. Sometimes leadership is simply leading by example and seeing a weed and pulling it because it's robbing nutrients from something that God wants to do and the life and fruit that he wants to bear. Sometimes being a leader is simply looking at the horizon of what God has placed in your garden, noticing the weeds and saying, not today. This is not okay, and that won't happen on my watch. Maybe it's something you stumble across on social media, and it it prompts you to sponsor a kid in a developing country. Or maybe it's the realization that we've got amazing nonprofits in this community that are trying to meet the needs, and they never seem to have enough hands, or they never have to seem enough resources. And that's why we partner, and we try to say, send us in. We'll help you. We want to meet physical needs so that we can get the voice to meet their spiritual needs. But that's leading like Jesus. There's going to be a day one day we see him face to face and he will ask us for an account. 
of every breath that we took, every word that we spoke, and every action in our short time here on planet Earth. And that conversation is going to look a little bit like this. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What I think he's saying is Jesus people, Christ followers, people who are stewarding their part of the garden well are going to have eyes to see and ears to hear the opportunities around them for restoration, for hope, for love, for generosity, for kindness, for sacrifice. People who follow the king and are ruling and reigning on his behalf, who have accepted the, 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 the charge of dominion over creation. We will take responsibility for our cut of the garden. We will serve our family. We will serve our church. We will serve our community. We will bear his image. We will share in his responsibility. We will watch life change begin to happen all around us as we feed the hungry, as we take care of the sick, as we visit those who are in jail, as we become the hands and the feet of Jesus. We get to bear his image and share his responsibility and then celebrate restoration and celebrate life change. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we exist as followers of God. In your life, in your work, in your neighborhood, on your kids' teams, bear his image well. Share his responsibility. And may the hope of restoration be greater than the threat of devastation as we seek to represent our king, rule and reign on his behalf, and bring hope to a lost and broken world. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we take this calling, that we take the privilege and honor of bearing your image, and we steward our time and our energy and our resources well. That when life doesn't go as planned, that it's just an opportunity to show the world around us that's looking for hope and a purpose in all the wrong places, that it all comes from you. And anything that's good in this world comes from you. Lord, may we plant the right seeds and, and tend to our garden well and bear fruit that not that it's not about us and that what we could do and our accomplishments and our accolades, Lord, but that when people would see us, that we would decrease and that you would increase. As we seek to bear your image and, and share in your responsibility to bring restoration to this planet. I pray that we would see life change happen all around us. As we say yes to your calling and your purposes for us. It's for your glory and it's in your name we pray. Amen.